Heavenly Father, as we recounted this morning what marvelous things you have done in redeeming a people for yourself. And so receive now back a small part of all that you have given us, not in any way as a repayment of debt, for we could never repay, but out of sincere gratefulness and eternal thankfulness for your great love and work in our lives. Use these tithes and offerings, Lord, for the extension of your kingdom and the glory of your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is indeed, as Glenn said, a pleasure to have Mark, a dear friend of this church, uh, back with us in the pulpit. So if you would remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 93. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word. As it is found in Psalm 93, I'm reading from the New International Version. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word, that we might learn more about you and your world and that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us as we honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well... For those of you who remember what it's like to live up north where you actually wear gloves in the winter, you know those nice leather gloves that just fit your hand? That's like this pulpit to me. Just feels good to be here, uh, delighted for the opportunity to preach. Uh, Actually, um, I must have been on some kind of withdrawal from Vero. This is Adele and I. This is our second trip down here this week. We have dear friends. Uh, I don't know that they've ever been here before. Dan and Debbie Doriani and their children and their grandchildren. And they were vacationing here in Vero Beach, and so we drove down on Wednesday and spent the day with them. We haven't seen. Uh, but they're the kind of, they're our friends that go all the way back to, uh, we uh, went to college together, we went to seminary together. Dan and I went to graduate.
we became pastors about the same time. We went into teaching in higher education about the same time. So we've just tried. Plus, it helped me remember how to get here. So it is good uh, to be with you. I don't. I, somebody must have known I was coming because there's a block of poplar in the pulpit. Uh, maybe it holds Seth's Bible a little bit higher. Oh, it holds his iPad. Well, I have an iPad. I'm going to put it here and hold my iPad too. So, uh, if you remember anything that I have ever said before in the past, you know. into my head uh, past week, and it was the word topsy-turvy. Um, my, my, um, my daughter, who is now married, got married in March, when Chris first came to the house, we were sitting out on the back patio, I don't know, watching TV, chatting, and uh, somebody said something, and I had to look up a word that we heard on TV or whatnot, so Annie just said to Chris, get used to it, that's the kind of thing we do. So I wanted to know where that expression came from. Uh, nobody's actually sure, but the tops probably comes from the plural top. And turvy is an old word that means to turn over so that the top is at the bottom. Um, it, it means to be in utter confusion or disorder. Uh, topsy-turvy, the top is on the bottom. Everything is upside down. I don't know. I'm guessing that maybe there are times, especially if you watch uh, any news, that you feel that our world is topsy-turvy these days. And uh, my guess is along with that, you kind of feel out of control. Uh, like, what can I do about it? Uh, there tends to be a feeling of being a victim of forces and powers that are greater than we are. And so the question that that raised in my mind is, how can we live in a world where we feel like everything is topsy-turvy? How can we live with confidence when we're not sure what's happening next? Well, this little psalm, Psalm 93, answers that question from its own perspective. Now, Psalm 93 is the first of a group of psalms, 93, we're going to skip over 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. All of these psalms have the exact same theme, and that is, the Lord is King. They're all kingship psalms, and they're all right at the very heart of the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms was completed when Israel was Back from the Babylonian captivity, they are living in the post-exilic community. They're remembering the promise that God made to David, you will never fail to have a son sitting on the throne. They look around. There's no throne. There's no son of David. Instead of being the powerful ancient Israelite empire that they used to be, they are now a poor province in the, in the western reaches of a large pagan Persian empire. And uh, their world seemed upside down. Everything seemed topsy-turvy. And right in the middle of this book of Psalms is this refrain, the Lord is king. 
The Lord is king. The Lord is king. And uh, they would say to themselves and their neighbors would say to them, you've got to be kidding me. Your God is in control of the world. Don't you watch the news? Uh, Your God, who said David will never fail to have a son sitting on the throne, hasn't kept his promise. There's no David on the throne. And Jerusalem is just this small, poor city. And we, the Persians, are the dominant world empire at this point. How do you have any confidence? How do you say the Lord is in control, the Lord is king, when there seems to be all kinds of evidence to the contrary? Psalm 93 is the first of these psalms that form the very heart of the book of Psalms. And it, it opens with the acclamation that the Lord has become king. Our translations maybe say something like the Lord reigns or the Lord is king. Um, better to say the Lord has become king. We're going to have to talk about that. Just when and how is going to be told to us in this little short poem. Now, when, um, when Seth asked me to preach... And um, I thought, well, okay, I've never preached on Psalm 93 before. It's one of my favorites. It's a little one. And then the more I started to think about it, I realized that to preach on this psalm requires me to tell you everything that I've learned over the last 40 years. (laughs) Because there are so many allusions and things that go this way and that way. It's just like this wonderful small piece of poetry that is packed with stuff. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist the temptation. Um, But there are three strophes. Remember, a strophe in prose is a paragraph. A strophe in poetry is a paragraph in prose. And in your translation, you probably see some extra white space after verse 2 and then some extra white space after verse 4. And this is a modern editor telling you that this little poem is broken up into three strophes, one and two, three and four, and then verse five. And so we're just going to march our way through this wonderful little psalm uh, as it teaches us how to live uh, with confidence and with holiness in a world that seems topsy-turvy. First of all, verses one and two, they start with that affirmation of faith. And that affirmation of faith is part one, verse one, part two, verse two, they're related to each other. The the heart of the affirmation is that the Lord has become king. Now that probably sounds a little bit strange to you because your immediate reaction is, well, hasn't the Lord always been king? So if he's always been king, how can he become king? Well, sometimes the Bible speaks of God from an eternal perspective, and sometimes the Bible speaks of God from a historical perspective. It's kind of like Jesus. Sometimes the Bible speaks of Jesus from a divine perspective, and sometimes it speaks of Jesus from a human perspective, both of which are true. And this psalm is speaking not from an eternal perspective. From an eternal perspective, God has always been God, 
And that means he's always been the monarch. He's always been the ruler. He's always been king. But from a historical perspective, there are various times when God has and will become king in a new way. Just to talk about the very end of time, Revelation 11 talks about this sort of thing. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. So the kingdom of this world is going to become something that it's not. Of course, God is king, always has been king over everything, but there's a historical sense that not until the very end will the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of God. It is not the kingdom of God now. It will become that. But more to the point, a few verses down in in, uh, verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, God's reigning now, but Revelation tells us that the time is coming in the end where he's going to begin to reign. Well, which is it? Is he reigning or is he going to begin to reign? And the answer is, is Jesus human or is Jesus divine? And the answer is, The Bible can often speak from various perspectives. And here in this psalm, we have that historical perspective about a time in the past when the Lord became king. And we get in this verse a little hint as to when that was with this reference to the Lord being clothed in all of this royal regalia. See, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. This is the language that's used of the Davidic king and and other royalty. This is royal regalia. Psalm 104, that beautiful hymn of creation, starts by saying, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. At the time of creation, God becomes king dons his royal regalia, and that is when, what's it say in uh, verse uh, 1? The world is firmly established, firm and secure. It's when the Lord created, when he made a firm and secure world, that he became king over this universe that he has made. Jeremiah 10, 12, but God made the earth by his power. Here's that word again. He established the world by his wisdom. Way back in the deep recesses of time, when God created everything, he made everything firm and secure. Isn't that what we want? To live in a world that is firm and secure and reliable Well, that's what God did at the time of creation. And when he did that, he became king. The Lord has become king. And notice verse 2, the second part of this affirmation, the Lord has established, there's our word again, established his throne. When did he establish this throne? 
Well, notice it says your throne was established long ago. Or your translation might say from of old. This is the Old Testament way of referring to the time of creation. When was God's royal throne established? When was it made firm at the time of creation? Proverbs 8.22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. The deeds of old, the six days of creation, uh, that's what our text is talking about. The Lord's throne was established when he became king at the time of creation. Uh, A little tricky part is when it says, you are from eternity. Well, surely this is switching to that eternal perspective. I don't think so. It's still staying with that historic perspective. You know, there's there's an Italian saying, and I often forget what it is, but I remember the translation. I think it's traditore, traditore. Just one slight difference. Yeah, traditore, translator, traditore, traitor. Translator is a traitor. And any of you who are bilingual, you know that when you move from one language to another, you never move from one language to another with like 100% precision. A little bit is lost, a little bit is added. I had a an interesting conversation. I, I taught for a couple of weeks for Campus Crusade a couple of weeks ago. And there was a woman who was uh, raised in the United States. She went with crew to Venezuela. She met a man from Venezuela. They got married. Uh, they only speak, they're back in the States. They only speak Spanish uh, in the home with their children. Uh, she said that the one older boy is kind of throwing a little monkey wrench because she catches him speaking English to the uh, younger siblings. But at any rate, she was talking, she was saying it, she said, I felt like an idiot. She said, it took me a year to figure it out. But she said, my, my young son, I think he was like three, he f- was saying to me for a year, mommy, I want you. And she thought, it's just a little strange that he's saying, mommy, I want you. And uh, she said, well, then it dawned on me, he was just picking the wrong English word. Because the word for want, desire, is also the word for love. And he was saying all this time, Mommy, I love you. But he was picking the wrong English word. That's just the nature of moving from one language to another. This from eternity uh, doesn't always, and most of the time in the Old Testament doesn't mean eternity like we think of it as unending time going way back there. Uh, for example, 1 Samuel 27, 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gesherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Parenthesis. We could translate it. It's the same word. From eternity, these people have lived in the land. Well, we know they didn't live in the land from eternity. And that's why the NIV says, from ancient times. What we read of in the Old Testament as eternity often could just be translated from ancient times. Your throne was established long ago. You, God, are from ancient times. Now, I'm not denying that God is eternal. 
God is eternal. All I'm saying is, that's not what this particular text is talking about. It's talking about God being king from the time when he established the world, when he established his throne long ago, from ancient times, the, the Genesis 1, the six days of creation. So let's just summarize this affirmation of faith. The affirmation of faith that we need is that the Lord became king at the time of creation. When he established the world and his throne to be firm and secure. Now that takes faith to say that, doesn't it? When you look at our world, when things are changing so rapidly, um, I calculated in talking to Zach that it was, it's been about 25 years, not quite, but probably about 25 years since I preached here the first time. And of course, here doesn't mean here. Here means in the, in the environmental, by the way, have they redone that environmental center? Because when Adele and I drove, we came on 510 to A1A, and instead of turning right to the church building, we went straight across. And I looked for this like old wooden building on stilts, and I didn't see it. I saw this kind of nude white dome building, and I thought, I wonder if they took down that old building. Uh, and then we remember, some of you will remember the shark on the wall at a, at a school somewhere down that way. And then we, 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 I talk as if this is like my home congregation. Then we finally moved here, didn't we? Yeah, how much has, how rapidly things change. I'll bet back then your goal with a cell phone was, is my cell phone smaller than everybody else's? Because that was the goal, the flip, I remember the Motorola flip phone, it was like, it was like about this big. And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, how many pixels does your camera have and how many lenses? Oh, you only have one. I have two. Oh, you only have two. I have three. Uh, And so now phones and iPads are like kind of interchangeable at this point. We live in a world where change is rapid and is it always for the good? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, how quickly did gas go from $2 a gallon to $4 a gallon? It was like overnight. Things can happen so quickly. Well, Russia might invade the Ukraine in a small way, and all of a sudden we have something burgeoning on World War III. This is a world in which everything seems to be in flux. Well, how can you have any confidence if, a, if you're living in a world that is in flux? You have to live by faith. By faith that this world didn't come from nowhere, it came from somewhere. And there is a God who created this world, and when he created it, he created it to be his realm, his royal realm. And he became king over that realm, and he created it firm and secure. And even though there are times when it feels like we're living on quicksand and not on What's the insurance company, the, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar? It's more like quicksand than the Rock of Gibraltar. We walk by faith. We believe what this psalm says. The Lord has become king. 
He is robed in splendor and majesty. The world is firmly established. God's throne is from ancient times. We walk by faith. Now, verses 3 and 4, we are not the proverbial ostrich with its head in the sand. There's an acknowledgement of opposition. Uh, This opposition in verses 3 and 4, the seas have lifted up. The seas, the seas. The opposition comes from the sea. Uh, The meaning of the word, I think the ESV translates as floods. Literally, it's it's a word for river. Uh, Seas don't have rivers, but what do they have that starts with with a sea? They have currents. And currents are like... Rivers. Hebrew doesn't have a word for current. It has the word river. And so if we're talking about currents in the seas or lakes, we use the word rivers. This is the word that is being used here. It's the seas. Uh, Like in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The seas, the rivers. That's what we're talking about. The seas are these currents in the Mediterranean for the ancients. But notice the intensity. The seas have lifted up. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Now, not only is the translator a traitor, but remember that old rabbi who said, Reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. Now, that's, um, that, it is a real kiss. You really can translate the Bible so that people get it. And the message of salvation is so clearly taught in so many places that the worst English translation can get you to heaven. But, It's also the case that there are times when we miss things in translation. And again, as any of you who who are bilingual know this, the seas have lifted, have lifted, have lifted. But there's a slight difference that is just beautifully poetic in Hebrew. Uh, There's one tense that is used in the have lifted. There's a second tense that is used in the have lifted. But the tent switches in the third have lifted. And that switch in tense is a tense that is used for when something happens in the past again and again and again. So the seas lifted once. The seas lifted another time. The seas lifted again and again and again and again. They're pounding waves. There's just an intensity of the the sea as opposition to the Lord and his kingdom. It's kind of like, um, well, I'm guessing that you've all been to the ocean, given that you live in Vero Beach. And, you know, there's one thing about the waves. They don't what? They don't stop. They might grow smaller. They might grow larger. But they just keep on coming. Minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year. And that's this 
continuous, this beautiful picture of this continuous opposition uh, to the Lord. Now, when we look at this intensity of the seas, the sea is a symbol throughout the Bible of that which opposes God's firm, secure, well-ordered world where people can flourish. That was God's design in the beginning, to create a world where people could flourish. And you know, to do that, God had to get rid of a problem, so to speak, in Genesis 1-2, and that was the watery mess that we had in the beginning. Um, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. It was too dark, and it was too wet for you to flourish. So God sets about in the space of six days of taking care of all of that to create a place where you as human beings can flourish. But that that sea, the waters, the deep, that stood as in opposition to the world that God wanted there to be, and God had to do something about it. Well, let's go a few more chapters in the book of Genesis to the flood. What happened at the time of the flood? The waters, which originally covered the earth, but God said, get off of the earth, now cover the earth again, nobody can flourish there. And so God tells uh, this guy named Noah to build an ark, Uh, so that people can make it to the other side of the flood and start to flourish once again. But the sea, again, it stands in opposition to God's good order where you can flourish. Uh, Let's skip down to the next book. Uh, God wants his people to live in the promised land. The problem is they're slaves in Egypt. So he delivers them out of Egypt. Well, problem is there's a barrier between them and the promised land, and it's called the, it's the Red Sea. So God has to take care of the sea again so that his people can go into the promised land and flourish. Oh, let's jump all the way to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping. There's waves. These guys think they're goners. They're terrified. Jesus gets up. And he rebukes the waves, same word that is used in Psalm 104 for the time of creation when God put the waters in place. The sea threatening the disciples so that they will not flourish, but God takes care of it. Well, let's jump to the very end again. Uh, John, in the book of Revelation, says he looked and he didn't see any what? He didn't see any sea anymore. The time is coming when there will be no opposition. There still is right now opposition to God's good order. But the time is coming. This is, our, this is the blessed hope of the believer that there's going to be a world where there is no longer any opposition to God and to his kingdom. But for now, we don't pretend, and of course it's pretty hard to pretend, even if you don't watch the news, if you have like a Facebook account or an Instagram or uh, uh, what's the other talk, the TikTok, yeah, it's, it's obvious that there's 
op- all kinds of opposition uh, all around. Um, I was talking with uh, crew members uh, ab- about uh, the long and successful ministry of Campus Crusade in China, which has pretty much been brought to an end because all the um, missionaries have been kicked out. There's an opposition to the Lord and to his kingdom. It's from the seas. And um, let's look at that verse 4. And and I'm going to do this verse 4 in a really literal way. It says, than the sound of great waters. And our question is, what then? That's like a comparison. It's, it moves on to say, mighty breakers of the sea. Then the sound of great waters, mighty breakers of the sea, mighty on high the Lord. Mighty on high the Lord. Then the sound of great waters, for the ancient Israelites, that meant on a kind of superficial level, the Mediterranean. See, there's the Sea of Galilee, but that's, that's not like the big sea. The big sea is the Mediterranean. But this Mediterranean, uh, with those storms that would come in the fall, when, when the, the, the Mediterranean is very calm over the summer, there's a high-pressure system parked over it, no wind, no waves, just placid, calm. But as that breaks down and cyclonic storms begin to come through there from the Atlantic, it's all turning up, and in the ancient mind, it's threatening to overcome the dry land and, and ruin God's well-ordered world. That's the Mediterranean, that opposition to the sea. And it is mighty. It is powerful. Why is it that like during a hurricane, people are drawn to the beach? They're drawn to the beach because they're encountering power. They're encountering a force that is beyond their control. They want to get close to this power of these large waves and the breakers of the sea. But what's the text say? Mighty on high is the Lord. Uh, I don't know if it was the last time I preached here. Pretty close, but I preached on Psalm 92 just before this. Remember we saw how the there's a mathematical center to Psalm 92, and the very center of that is verse 8, you are on high forever, O Lord. And this text is connecting with that. So to summarize this opposition, there's always been opposition to the Lord and His kingdom. There's always been opposition to God's rule, opposition to His his vision of a well-ordered world where His people can thrive. But the Lord is in heaven. He's on high. He's above the fray. He's not caught up in it. And from there, he reigns over all, which is why Jesus taught us to pray. What's the first thing? Our Father in heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, 
Where do you start? You start by reminding yourself that God is not on the earth, so to speak. Now, as Zach prayed, God is imminent. He is everywhere. But you remind yourself that not only is God everywhere, but he's transcendent. He is above everything. As Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven. You are on earth, so let your words be few. I need to take that advice myself. Our Father in heaven, when we pray that, we're acknowledging that even though there is opposition, God is in heaven above it all, and he's in control of it all. Now, don't ask me to explain God, why he does it, the way he does it. Why was there a fall as opposed to no fall? Why didn't God just create us and have us go right into the perfection of no opposition in the heavenly order? Why this long period of opposition and the kingdom coming, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. I don't know, but God God knows. And ultimately, we acknowledge that God does all that he does well. He does it for our good. He does it for his glory. So, on the one hand, how do you live in a world that's topsy-turvy? You don't have to pretend that it's not. But you don't have to succumb to fear as if it's all going to end because God has become king. He's always been king over creation. And we don't understand how he rules his creation, but we believe. This is is Job, right? Job didn't sin or do anything to cause his suffering, but through his suffering, he learned a couple of things. And one thing that he learned was that God knows more about running the universe than Job knows. And he submitted to that. And he also learned that God has more power than he does. And he submitted to that. And then what? He was doubly blessed uh, at the end. So, you know Whitney Houston, one of my favorite theologians. Hold on, help is on the way. That you walk by faith. Don't be surprised when things are topsy-turvy, but walk by faith that God is in control. Finally, and more briefly, because there's just one verse and not two, this psalm ends with a call to holiness. So we have this affirmation of faith, this acknowledgement of opposition, but then this call to holiness, verse 5 almost seems out of place when it says, Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. But it's not out of place because history repeats itself. In the beginning, uh, God becomes king at the time of creation. And when he becomes king at the time of creation, he has to vanquish those waters of Genesis 1-2. And then when he builds the creation, he has a goal in chapter 2 of creating the whole earth to be this Garden of Eden where he can live with his people. So, conquer the water, build a a sanctuary where God can live with his people. And that pattern repeats itself in Scripture at the time of the Exodus. God conquers the waters of the Red Sea, and then eventually after that, in Jerusalem, they build the 
temple. Before that, in the wilderness, they build the tabernacle. But there's something that happens in between the conquering of the Red Sea and the building of the tabernacle temple. There's an intervening event. And what is that intervening event? It's the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Exodus and Leviticus are connected. Exodus teaches us where to find God because the whole second half of the book is about the building of the tabernacle and at the end of the book, God's glory comes and inhabits the tabernacle. Leviticus then asks the question, okay, now that we have found God, how do we live in God's presence? And I forget, it's like 152 times in the book of Leviticus, what word is repeated? Starts with an H. Holy. You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 152 times. Remember, your English teacher said, repeat your vocabulary or you'll be boring. Hebrew mother said, repeat your vocabulary. How else will anybody know what you're talking about? And so, holy, holy, holy. We're in the sanctuary, but how do we live? Holiness. And so, that's why this psalm ends the way it does. And, and, and notice what these statutes are. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. See, like the earth is firm, God's statutes are firm as well. God has not only established a firm order in creation. Okay, if if you're betting, and and I let go of this, how many of you are betting it's going up? How many of you are betting it's going left? How many of you are betting it's going right? Who's betting it's going down? Why is it going down? Because God has been king of creation. From ancient times. He has built an order into the world. Uh, Why is science possible? See, in the church, when we have this, like, sometimes this antithesis or antipathy, the Bible and science, it's just wrong-headed. The only way science works is because there is regularity and repeatability in the, if you tested, if something, if everything changed every time you put it under a microscope, there would be no scientific advancement. Scientists do their marvelous work because of re- repeatability. This thing goes down and it goes down and it goes down and it goes down until finally somebody says, oh, we're going to call that gravity. It's the way God has made the world to work. And in the same way that there is a firm order in creation, there's a firm cosmic order, there is also a firm moral order. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Now, how many of you are in control of everything that you watch on the news? How many of you are in control of your own lives? You can't control what other people are doing. You can control what you do. You can control the decisions that you make, the actions that you take. How do we live in a world that is topsy-turvy morally? 
Well, we don't live in a world that is topsy-turvy morally thinking that we have the power to change everybody else's morality. You do have the power to govern your own morality. But, you know, speaking for myself, it's much easier to be critical of other people than it is to look inward and be critical of myself. And now I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about the moral order of others in the world, and, but I, what I am saying is what this text is saying is there is something you can do in a world that is topsy-turvy. You can strive to live in keeping with the principles that God has revealed in his word, with the faith that because God is in control, you're going to flourish as a result. So even, the world, even though the world does seem topsy-turvy, you don't have to live flustered all the time. Psalm 93 inspires you to live with confidence. Your God is the King of creation and the Lord of the nations. He is, in the language of the psalm, armed with strength. The greatest demonstration of God's power in creation was not what he did at the time of creation, but when he, what he did when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that power of the resurrection, says Paul, is a power that is for us who believe. He grants that same strength so that you can conquer whatever hostile, topsy-turvy forces you face in your own lives. Psalm 93 also inspires us to live with holiness. God's royal power is at work within us that we might conquer the sin that remains in us and live lives of holiness to the glory of the King. We live with confidence and holiness knowing that the Lord became King at creation and at the Exodus and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and that the day is coming when he is going to become king in a consummate way. And we say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would write this portion of your word on our lives, that we might live with confidence and holiness, even in a world that seems topsy-turvy. We pray this for our good, for the good of our fellow human beings, and ultimately for your glory. Amen. Well, let's stand.